Now we remember as we come here, this is in Acts chapter 13, the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas has begun. As they reach this stage, they've gone to the Isle of Crete and then moved on from there. As they've come to this city, they've gone to the synagogue and they have been given the opportunity to speak in the synagogue. One of the things that we saw in the midst of their speaking is there, they, there was a quick entrance from beginning to speak of what God has done, what God has revealed that was known to the Jews, and quickly into the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we take this up today, we take it up in verse 38, where he begins with this simple phrase, let it be known. I like this because the important thing that we need to understand in all of this, it is to be known and it is to be believed because it is true. We do live in a world where there's a tendency for people to think that everybody gets to choose to believe whatever they want. And however they want. And everybody should be free to believe whatever they want. This is not ultimately true. We don't even live in a world where that works. Should, should people be allowed to just drive on whatever side of the road they want? If they want red to mean go and green to mean stop, is that going to work fine? It's not. Nobody wants to live in a world where people are given absolute carte blanche freedom to do whatever they want. Even further, with regard to simple and specific things, we would ultimately have to abandon school and education at some point. Two plus two equals well, for to you, but to me, what? Can, can, can to me it be something other than four? Look, if to me it's something other than four, I'm just wrong. Well, I choose to believe it's five. Because two and two, you know, and then you put them together. Yeah, you throw one in for good measure. Does it make sense? No, but people can justify all kinds of things. Here he's saying, let it be known. And the scriptures are always constant about this. They're declaring, and even throughout the Old Testament, it would say to the children of Israel, behold your God. It would say to them and to the nations around them, there is no God but the God of heaven. He's the one who has created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. And the scriptures are over and over again saying these things. And it's not for people to sit there and lean back and scratch their head and saying, I'm not quite there yet. Can you imagine that? Two plus two is four. I'm not quite there yet. You know, you're going to need to convince me a little more than that. What? You know, I wish that there was a way that I could communicate it with, with, the, with the clarity and power of that. The fact that the God of the Bible is the true God who has made everything that is. The fact that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God who came, lived a sinless life, 
died on the cross for all of the sins of his people, was buried, rose again on the third day, and has ascended to the Father. This is fact. This is not opinion. This is not myth. This is not story. This is not up for discussion or debate. This is to be declared. It is to be set forth. It is to be announced. It is to be shouted from the hilltops. It is to be said, listen, let it be known. There's no other way. There's no other name. There's no other salvation. This is truth. And what's sad is we live in a world where, where the idea has diminished from that. Where there is no absolute truth. There is no right and wrong. Where, where the lines of, of decency, the lines of morality, the, are, are always moving lines in the opinions of men. But we know that when everything truly is ultimately judged by the great and holy God... I love that language that we read all the time as you're reading through first and second kings and another king comes into place and the scriptures say this. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as did his father and followed in the sins of Jeroboam and so on. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord as did his father David and walked in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But what, it, what ended up What's clear in that and so beautiful that we must not miss is they did what was right and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The reason why that we live in a world that doesn't see that absolute unchanging standards is because people do what is right in the eyes of men. Or even a warning at times in the children of Israel. It says at that time there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you got not only the, the, the degradation of culture that takes place inevitably. But then worse than that you got people who say yeah even that standard's too high for me. And constantly trying to pull the standard of men even lower. Let it be known and I love this listen listen cl clearly let it be known therefore brothers that through this man and that, that's what I never want us to miss through this man who is the this man that is being referred to here we know it, yeah, Christ has been, been, been being unpacked and unfolded and all of this. And even with the sense of therefore that is there, so powerful in, in the context of it. Because if you look back to chapter, still same chapter, but verse 22 and 23, it says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Verse 34 also goes on to say this. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. It was spoken in this way. Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So with, with Jesus, you have... The promised son of David. 
of the tribe of Judah. And there's so much in the Old Testament that builds on that, of the tribe of Judah, on the throne of David. And all of that points forward, and he's set, setting in there, this one. It, it is in the singular, it is in the masculine. This one man. Some translation, I believe the King James there, just simply says, this Jesus so that people don't miss the focus there. But this one, not any of the others who came before him, not David himself, not Solomon, not any of the descendants, even faithful men such as Hezekiah and Josiah, not even these men, Jesus himself, and through him and only him is what? Listen. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Now, what, what's, what's wonderfully beautiful bound up in that that goes back to things that we've considered before. Listen, you know what's not first of all being proclaimed to people? Do you want a better life? Do you want your best life now? Do you, do you want all that the world has to offer? Do you want to go to heaven? It, it, it doesn't start with, with some kind of bait and switch. It, it, it's very clear, forgiveness of sin. Now when you say, in this man is forgiveness of sin. What is clearly bound up in that sentence? Yes. Everyone is in need. Well, why do I need forgiveness of sin? Interesting you should ask. <laughs> because the scriptures say what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God should mark man's sin, then no living being could stand before him. And it, it, it just, it begins on that right note, that awareness I need forgiveness. I'm not acceptable. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. Indeed, I am sinful. I am condemned. I need be forgiven. Which is important because it makes, it puts things from the right perspective. And I just want to help us get this because uh, through the years, uh, the presentation of the gospel begins to get slowly tweaked and adjusted and modified by men. Now, I want you to notice this. In this man is forgiveness of your sin. What a, what a strong and important statement that is. Listen to what the scriptures say, okay? Concerning the forgiveness of sin. It says this in Luke 24, 47. It says that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So listen, wherever the gospel goes, the... the central core statement that can't be left off is what? Repentance and forgiveness of sin. We live in a world in which there are some, and, and I won't point fingers, but there are some churches that actually feel like repentance is a bad word. 
Don't tell people to repent because then you're making it about what they do instead of about the grace of God. No, we're not. You know, you might as well tell them, don't tell them to believe because you're making it about what they do instead of what God does. We repent and we believe because of the mighty grace of God working in us, working upon us. So it's not rooted in men, but it is repentance and forgiveness is to be proclaimed. Listen, let me, let me just, uh, 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 one other place. First John 2, 2 says, I'm writing to you little, 2, 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Oh. And this is what I don't want you to miss. And sometimes it is, listen, your sins can be forgiven. And the, and the emphasis there it should be a, a clear importance. You need to have your fit sins forgiven. But this passage says this, that through this man... Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sin is important. But the significance is that the forgiveness of sin is in Christ Jesus. So Christ can't be marginalized. Forgiveness, uh, repentance can't be set aside. All these things have to be front and center. And then it, not only uh, does it say forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you through this man. It goes on still now into verse 39. And everyone, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, now, again, I want you to note this. The first time it was through this man. The second time it, it's by him you're freed. And I, I, I've got to point this out because it is interesting nuance here. In the... King James and a couple other translations. The word there is not freed, but justified. Okay? Now, because it, the, what, what we have by Christ carries these two senses. It, it, it is, there, it is a, a positional dealing and it deals with the penalty as well as it deals with the power that is accomplished through Christ. Christ's death and, and what is given to us by faith in, in him is that we are positionally in a different place, that penalty of sin has been poured out on him and thus removed, it will not be poured out on us, and there is now power that we are free from the entrapment and the enslavement of sin that was ours. Now, I just want to point out a few verses that, that hopefully begin to make a few of these things clear. When you say forgiveness of sin is necessary... It's important. Uh, verses such as Isaiah 59 say this. Verse 2 says this. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. What a strong warning that was to the children of Israel who, who, who considered themselves... Under the old covenant perspective to be God's people. And God says to them, your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. So when you declare to people the need for forgiveness of sin, you're reminding them what? Your sins have separated you from God. 
Now, I want to go back to what I started to say a moment ago. Go, here's the point. In order to draw near to God, in order to be reconciled to God, you need forgiveness of sin. He, as the Lord of the heaven and the highest heavens, all that is made, uh, of he who rules and is enthroned in the holy place, the question is this, how can we draw near to him? How can we come into his presence? How is it that we, in our sin, can ever be accepted by this God? How will we ever find acceptance from him? See, now this is, I, I say this, and, and here is how it establishes this idea. Here, how do we find acceptance? How is the modern gospel off, often presented? Here's Jesus. And he's, he's trying to get acceptance from you. Won't you give him a chance? Won't you accept him? But we, we've, we're not declaring it. Be it known this. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed in this man's name. You need to be accepted by God. The only acceptance by God is in the beloved. Is in Jesus Christ. You know, it's so sad because we, there, there's a sense in which we, we've somehow, through our, the way we present it, we've removed God from the throne, the king, and we've put man. And we've said, won't you accept sweet Jesus instead of how will a holy God Accept sinful you only because of a suffering Jesus. We can't miss that. And, you know, and, and it's just right there in the simple language of forgiveness of sin. It, it begins with you're estranged, you're separated. There must be a reconciliation that is done. Romans uh, with regard to this, it says this in Romans 3.24. That we, those who are believers by grace, are justified. That is, declared righteous. So we're still imperfect. We still stumble. But by union with Christ, we are declared righteous. And one of the ways that, that often children are taught to understand this is that we're, we're treated just as if we'd never sinned. Because he looks at us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ who never sinned. But in order to do that, God looked upon his son through my sin and your sin and treated him as if he was a sinner. Treated him as if he was wicked. We who should be estranged. Jesus who has that eternal unity and blessedness with the father. Utters those confusing and mysterious words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
in a mystery that our minds, I don't think, can fully comprehend because we can't understand the blessedness of that eternal unity of the Father and the Son. Nor do I think we understand the wickedness and vileness of sin and of the wickedness that, that is ours and that Christ took that upon himself. But not only the position and penalty so that now we are in Christ, now we can draw near to God, now we're accepted, but more than that, there is a sense in which there is freedom. Under the, under the law, even Paul says this as he's working his way through Romans 7 and 8. He says, you know, the, the law came and sin increased. You know, once I was told not to covet, then suddenly what happened? I started wanting stuff more. It, 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 the, the nature that was within me, and, and this, this kind of happens. Because it happens... Parents at times use what we think is so wisely called reverse psychology on children. You know, if you if you want them to go get something and pick it up and bring it to you, you tell them, hey, don't pick that up and bring it to me. Just leave it there. Don't pick it up and bring it to me. And inevitably, what's the kid going to do? He's going to do the opposite of what you said. Now, why does he do that? Yeah. Now, he doesn't do it every single time. We're thankful for the restraining grace of God across the globe and across mankind. But left to ourselves, yeah, we, we tend to rebel. You know, you know, and this is something that is inescapable partly because as it says, but listen what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be destroyed or brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I mean, that, that, that's a beautiful thing. It freed us. Even under the law, they were slaves to sin. The, lay, the law was sort of their tutor or guardian until Christ came. Here is the one who can set you free from what the law could never do. By the works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight. The only standing of righteousness, purity, blamelessness, the only hope that we have is in Christ, not ourselves. And, and he lays that out, even unfolding it further. For the one who has died... Has been set free from sin. And you say but I haven't died. Well verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. So there is a sense in which when we come to faith in Christ. We die. Now I'm going to say something really confusing. And I hope I can bring it together and make it clear. The scriptures tell us, and we're well aware of this in Ephesians chapter 2, it says it twice, as well as in Colossians, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Okay? So listen, there is a, the scriptures tell us that there is a sense spiritually in which we were dead. 
And when we were dead, we were living according to the course of this world. We were living the desires of the flesh. Then in the mercy of God, as we were dead in our sin, living in our flesh, he brought us into union with Christ by faith. And in that, we died to our enslavement to the flesh and were made alive in the spirit unto Christ. So, so wait a second. When I, when I was united to Christ, was I made alive or did I die? And the answer is yes. You were made alive, no longer dead in your trespasses and sin. But you were also dead, no longer alive to the slavery to the flesh. Oh, that's confusing. It's not just, it's not merely confusing, it's powerful. It, it, it's both sides that are absolutely necessary and taken care of, which is why if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. So he says in Romans 6 down in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So, wait, we died with Christ, and in dying with Christ, we were brought to life. Is it getting clearer? I hope so. But present your, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Listen, for sin will have no dominion over you. Now, brothers and sisters, will you still stumble? Will you still do wrong sometimes? And was sometimes an understatement? <laughs> okay, we will still do wrong, but we will not have, sin will not have dominion over us. We will not be daily dedicated to it. We will stumble in it, we will react to it, we will struggle against it because the flesh wages war within us, but we are no longer servants to it. We're no, it no longer has mastery over us since you're no longer under the law, but under grace. Now, verse 16, still in, Rome, now in Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one that you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So listen, what this is saying is what people don't like to hear, but this is truth. Let it be known. Everyone, everyone is a slave. And you are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of, if you unpack this passage, a slave of righteousness, a slave of God. Well, I'm not a slave. Even the children of Israel tried to say that to Jesus. Well, we're not slaves. We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Which is always shocking because the history of Israel, uh, they began as a nation coming out of slavery from Egypt. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What are you talking about? You were enslaved for 400 years children of Abraham, and then you were enslaved for seasons to the Pharisees, to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians. Do you know nothing? 
But more than that, in all of those times with regard to the flesh, you had the, the life in this world, you had seasons of earthly slavery to individuals and earthly freedom. But through all of that, you were continuously slaves of sin. And it says this, but I love what it says in verse 17, because after saying all of that, there's one or the other, but it says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Thanks be to who? God. So who set you free? God. You were slaves of sin and he set you free, making you dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. And now you are a slave of God. But listen, it's not a, it's not a following in an obedience of misery and drudgery. It, it says this, you've become obedient from the heart. You love him. You long for him. You desire to follow him. You desire to serve him. He is your everything. Let it be known. Son of David. Indeed, in verse 30, it also says this. Uh, 33, quoting from Psalm 27. You are my son, God says. Today I have begotten you. So here is this one man. Son of David. Son of God. In that unique, powerful, prophetic, and messianic sense. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the unique and only one. And through him is forgiveness of sin. And by him is justification and freedom. So listen. As great as justification, freedom, and forgiveness are. They are in all through and by Christ, let us not miss that. And Christ has done what no one else could do. And if these things are not done, forgiveness, justification, and freedom, men remain estranged from God, separated by God from their sin, and there is no hope of acceptance. There is no hope of dwelling with him for eternity. Apart from Christ. And so th this is what uh, he sets forth. Now secondly in this passage. I want to draw your attention to the beware. So the first thing is the be known. The second thing is the beware. And that is. Uh, comes to us in this passage. Uh, j just uh, still here in Acts 13 coming down. He, sa he says these words. As he moves on from. From. Uh, 38 down to uh, 40 says this, beware, or some other translations say, watch out. So here is a, is a statement of warning. And really this is going to come, there's going to be a beware here that's linked together with a begetting. And I'll explain that in just a moment. All right. It says this, beware. Lest what the prophets said sh about you should, should come about. And he quotes now from Habakkuk 1.5. Now in Habakkuk 1.5, 1, 1, God is, is, is telling to the prophet, 
that I am going to bring a wicked nation, a wicked nation against Israel, and that nation will, will punish them, will hurt them, will, will enslave them. And Habakkuk's thinking in his mind, that doesn't make sense. Why would God, who is good and holy, use a wicked nation to accomplish his work? I don't understand. And here's what often happens when people don't understand. I don't understand. I don't accept. I don't agree with it. Doesn't make sense to me. And what often happens is people say, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't agree with it. They have a solution. They have a difference. This is, this is my take on it. This is, these are my thoughts. These, my thoughts, my take, your take, anybody's take doesn't stand anything. It is God alone who declares the truth. And, and it says in here, and this is what's really scary in this prophecy. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that, listen, you will not believe even if someone tells you. Now, that's a scary thing, right? Here's how it's going to work, God says. Someone's going to tell it to you. When they do, you know what your response is going to be? I don't believe. What? That's difficult. Well, it's not, shouldn't be that confusing. We remember as we've studied through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it tells us what is the response of Jews? They're offended. What is the response of Gentiles? This is foolishness. So the Jews are offended that Christ is the one. That, that the Messiah would suffer. The, the Gentiles reject it. But then the scripture says. So the natural reaction of natural men is. I don't believe it. But then it says. But the, to those who are called. Hmm. That's why chapter 2 verse 14 says. The natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually discerned and so what happens you share the gospel and i know you've had this experience you share the gospel with someone and you think you've made it really clear you've declared to them what is absolutely the bedrock of your own life and hope and joy and they look at you uh-uh not for me. What you don't understand is you can't say not for me because someday God has appointed to a judge the living and the dead by this man. Everyone will someday stand before him. So you can, you can say right now, not me, but you don't thereby escape. You, you, the, uh, again, the simple reality, and I'm not going to actually demonstrate it, but if someone walks to the edge of a cliff 
It says, I do not believe in gravity. Because they don't believe in gravity, can they just continue walking? Or what happens? Believe or not believe, the moment you step off the cliff, what's happening? Drop and splot. There's no way. It does, and, and that's the reality with the gospel that we preach, that we, we want to convey. That's why Paul often says, we urge, we beseech. We, even Paul speaks of how he would do so with tears and earnestness because he knows this is no game. This is no joke. This is everything. This isn't just me versus you. It's not just Christianity versus Buddhism and Hinduism and Shintoism and whatever else it is. It is truth. Absolute, sure truth against all that is false. And he says this. So the natural response of men is. And, and this is frightening to me initially because I read this. Um, I'm going to tell you what I'm, what I'm doing. And it's amazing. Providing salvation and forgiveness of your sin. And here's going to be your response. You're not going to believe. Oh, no. But thankfully, that's not the entirety of all the scripture has to say. Because from here, we get to even move forward to, to chapter, verse 48. Look what it says in verse 48. Even as they finished preaching more about the gospel of Christ, it says this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And then look what it says. Look with your own eyes. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you have a King James there, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. Listen, left to ourselves, no believe. But those that God has purposed to pour out his grace upon, we will believe. Oh, listen, listen to the, the way that the scriptures unpack this in just a few verses with me. Um, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, the scripture says this, and I, and, I, and I hope to be very helpful for you. I know sometimes you don't like to get technical, but some of you do like it, so let's get a little technical. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes, and the ESV says, has been, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been been born of God. So let me again state that. Everyone who believes. So right now, I believe. Praise God. If I believe, it's because I, now this is bad English, I has been born of God. Right? Now, the, the believe is, in the, is a participle present active. We believe and we keep on believing. It is an active thing. We are involved in the believing. You must believe. I must believe. Anyone who does not believe has not eternal life. Okay? Let's not mistake that. But it says this also. Uh, 
has been born of God is in the indicative perfect passive. Okay? Which means he, somebody else, caused you to be born again. Now, that's a little random to say somebody else. It's not simply somebody else. God himself caused you to be born again to a new and living hope. That's why it says this, in, you know, the, the way that it says this, everyone who lo loves the Father or loves, the ESV says, everyone who, the King James says, everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So, him that begat. Now, in our English, it often says father here. Okay? Because the father is the one that begat. But in the Greek here, it is the begetter. So, listen. Who is active in born again? The begetter. Who is passive? The one being born. But when one is born... Now something active happens. And you know what that is? Well, a, a multitude of things. We can't unpack them all this morning. But one of the things that happens is repentance of sin. And the other, joined with it, is belief in Jesus Christ. We actively repent. We actively believe because of the grace of God that has caused us to be born again. Listen to what it says in Philippians 1.29. Reminding us of things that have been granted to us. Two things are spoken of as granted to us in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ... Um, that you should not only believe, the first thing that's granted is that you believe, and the second thing that's granted is that you suffer for his sake. Now, a lot of people are happier with the first one. I'm happy to uh, be granted to believe because all who believe have eternal life. Praise God, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see Wonderful. When, when he gave the blind person sight, they now actively see. But could they see before God did his work? No, they couldn't. Could we believe before God poured his spirit upon us? No, we couldn't. But as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. But not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. So be a little warned when you hear somebody roaming around out there saying, God is like your father, which is not untrue. But they'll say, I, as your father, if I see my child suffering and I have the ability to stop it, then I stop it. I protect them against the bully. I, I, I defend them. I, I do that. And, and God's a better father than than us, right? So surely God doesn't want his children to suffer. And everybody starts to scratch their head and says, well, that sounds right to me. But here's the problem. It's wrong. Many things that sound right are still nonetheless wrong. How can you know that it's wrong? Uh, because God has granted us to suffer for him. Because 1 Peter reminds us, as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same intention. 
I mean, come on. The scriptures are abundantly clear. So listen, where the logical minds of men move on from the metaphors of scripture, father and children, uh, you don't trust men's musings. You don't trust men's myths and men's minds. You know what you trust? The word of God. Which forcibly jumps us on in limited time to our next point. Though I had so much I was hoping to unpack on that. But listen. Uh, I love the fact that it, it, when they went out from there, we see the begging. Listen to what it says in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that they might hear these things told them the next Sabbath. I have two feelings about that. One, oh, it's so good that they want to hear it again. But two, oh no, why are you just wanting to hear it again? Why are you not owning it? Why are you not loving it? Why are you not following it? There, there are times the scripture warns about people who can uh, be interested in merely hearing but not becoming doers. Ezekiel, that prophet of God, it, it, it's warned of him. It says this of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33 verse 32. And behold, you are, like, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. So before we start jumping up and down, they wanted to hear again. They want it. Well, yeah. Is it they want to hear because they want to repent and they want to follow Christ? Or is it a, a want for some other reason? There can be intellectual interest in the deep things of theology. And there can be a, and, the, and the philosophy involved behind it and the wonderful construct. There can be an emotional interest in terms of, of a severe lack and struggle in this life and a need. And nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. But Jesus loves you. Oh, he, and, you know, and, and, and there can be an emotional interest that stirs up. There can be an earthly interest, success and prosperity and all these other things. But here's the problem. People are begging to hear. Is it because they want to change? Even then, if the only desire is to change because I know what I'm doing is making my life hard for me. Is it enough? I want to change. I want help. I want a blessing. I want success. I want hope. I want heaven. I want acceptance. But you know what they're not saying? I want Jesus. I must have Jesus. Take everything else. Give me Jesus. This is what I want. Where's that? They'll say, well, all right. These are all the things I want. And if the only way I can get these things is, is from Jesus, then okay, I'll have myself a little Jesus. That does not work. That's the, 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 the thing is this, and I would say this, if, now this is not what the scriptures say, clear, not what the scriptures say, this is me speaking nonsense, note it, if it were that to follow Jesus meant every subsequent day was struggling and suffering, would you turn away? See, and for those of us who, who 
have been granted by the Spirit to see the glory of Christ revealed in the Scripture, we say, no way. No way I would turn away because the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that he has prepared for those who love him. So it would matter if you piled it up with promises of pain. Wouldn't matter. I'm still going there because he is everything. But there's a lot of people who want all of the benefits all of the promises and eh, all right i mean if we got to have some jesus too but their heart their mind see again forgiveness of sin through him strength and power to live in newness of life by him we are we died to self christ in us the hope of glory how is it that christ could ever be put aside there was a uh, something that was written a number of years back and simply was trying to get people to think about this and say look streets of gold if that's what you like to imagine mansion in heavens if that's what you like to would you want and accept all of those things if christ wasn't there Do you eagerly long for the appearance of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Is it Christ and seeing Christ as he is and being with him and being made like him? Is that your longing or is it? You're longing for the streets of gold. I cannot wait to skip on street. Come on. Where is the real value? Where is the truest treasure? Where is the most abiding thing? It's indeed, it is in Jesus. And so again, I just simply want to have to end with this. In Acts 13, 44, listen to, so here's the emphasis. Whenever you're going to have a Christ-centered emphasis and whenever you're going to have a faithful ministry, there's going to be an unwavering situation. Verse 44, they gathered the next Sabbath to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas said this, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when they believed, those who were appointed to eternal life believed, it says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. Glorifying not only God, not only praising God, but glorifying, boasting in, loving and adoring the word of God, the word of the Lord. And verse 49 says what? And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So a simple note. Faithful church going to be focused on the word of God. At all times and in all places. Where there is this, this beginning of the word of God as they go. You find there will be a be it known. And that be it known will declare Christ. And in declaring Christ, it will say, in him is forgiveness of sin. In him is freedom. In him is justification. It, it will also come with warnings. If you do not believe, the wrath of God abides on you. And lastly, we, you know, we would hope and pray that we would see um, much more begetting through the powerful work of God's word. Even as I simply end by saying this first peter chapter 1 verse 23 to 25 since you have been born again 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? How is it that you and I were born again? Through the living and abiding word of God. The word is preached to many. But when, when God sends the Spirit who takes it not merely to fall upon our ears outwardly, but implants it and imparts it within us, we are made new. And that's why it says you are born again by the living and abiding word. All flesh is like grass and the flowers, they, they wither and they fade. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. No time today, but I urge you to read also for yourself in there where there is a faithful preaching of the word, where there is a right declaration of the word of God and Christ is exalted. There is going to be enmity. There's going to be jealousy. There's going to be reviling and there's going to be they're even going to speak against Paul. So let's be ready for what comes when we declare the word of God without wavering, without shaking, without breaking. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be able to spend time in your word. And it's a big part of me that would love to just spend a lot more time unpacking some of these things. But I pray you'll take the simple overview that has been given and that you would encourage the hearts and minds and inform the saints who you've gathered here. Even as we do know in this world, Lord, you have purposed and granted for many of us to be those that you've appointed to eternal life. You've granted that by your spirit through the word, because of Christ, we would believe. And yet it's been granted to us not only to believe, but also to suffer for your name. We see the suffering that was appointed to the apostles. Lord, we just pray that you would grant us a boldness in this world. As we live in what people like to say in so many ways, relativism into postmodernism and all the, the different excuses for where, why men deny absolute truth. Lord, help us just to declare it unwaveringly, unashamedly. Let us declare it with earnestness, with urging and with imploring, with the full confidence that all that you've appointed to eternal life will believe. And we thank you for that confidence we have because of the work of Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.